Okay, so um, this is uh, a workshop on secular Buddhism and I've sort of subtitled it Making the Most of the Human Condition and um, I'll try to unfold that idea as we go through the workshop. And this first talk I've entitled In the Beginning Was the Human Condition the Buddha's new way to work with it. So, um, secular Buddhism, um, what is it? It's, uh, it's a fairly new label. I think it's only been around for about five, four or five years, the label. But it's um, in some way um, retrospectively picking up on spontaneous developments that have occurred in the West and um, initially in the English-speaking world um, and only in the last couple of years has begun to spread beyond to the German, Swedish and Spanish-speaking worlds if to judge by the websites that have started to appear. Uh, but um, what we thought was going on particularly in the English-speaking world were uh, gradual piecemeal adaptations to um, particularly the way people associated with each other. You know, it's something we talk about in political sociology is principles of association. How is, you know, what are the assumptions when we get together to organise a basketball club or, um, you know, a, a club uh, that intends to overthrow capitalism or, um, you know, a, um, a group that wants to practise the Dharma? And um, more and more people became dissatisfied with monastic, Asian monastic notions of how we should associate with one another. You know, do we need hierarchies? Uh, do we need people in, you know, different kinds of costumes around? Uh, what's all that about anyway? And so um, gradually there's been a kind of um, uh, adaptation to the lay orientation of Western, a lot of Western Buddhism. Now, of course, we're talking about a small group of people here, uh, comparatively speaking. You know, the vast majority of people who practice the Dharma in Western countries are migrants from Asian countries. So they're practicing forms of Buddhism that they grew up with in uh, their home countries or their former home countries. Uh, then there's another group of uh, Westerners who want to practice like the, like the diasporic groups practice, like they practice in Thailand or Sri Lanka or Tibet or somewhere like that. So what we're talking about here with secular Buddhism uh, is a, a spontaneous development among Westerners who don't want to particularly abandon their own cultural and ethical positions in order to be able to practice the Dharma. Uh, so um, lots of these sort of piecemeal changes occurred in certain practice communities around the Western world and particularly um, the English-speaking Western world and eventually these sorts of things attracted the label secular Buddhism. So Buddha, secular Buddhism is not a school of Buddhism, 
it holds to no orthodoxy, there's no secular Buddhist canon um, or catechism. There is, it has no institutional existence except um, you know, in the form of uh, websites and a certain amount of um, a certain uh, and chat rooms and uh, a certain conversation that's been going on now much more intensively since the uh, the idea of secular Buddhism has been announced. But it's still a very diverse trend. What secular Buddhism means um, to uh, me might be quite different to what it means to you or to Hartmut. Um, and um, you'll, and I think that you, there are clear geographical differences between uh, the, the orientations of, say, secular Buddhists in the United States to the secular Buddhists in um, Australia and New Zealand, for instance. So, um, what uh, we need to get straight in as much as we can is the idea of secular. What is, what is secularity? Uh, and in popular, in popular parlance, one immediately thinks, oh, secular is the negation of religion. They're kind of uh, mutually exclusive. They're in opposition to one another. And for starters, I want you to uninstall that idea. So... Um, Let's look at what secular means in terms of its etymology, including in terms of the origin of the idea of secular. Clearly, uh, you can't, one can't say that secular is the opposite of religion when, for instance, in the Catholic Church, the religious professionals are divided between the religious and the secular. The religious are those who... Uh, who are members of contemplative orders, who are, you know, as it were, turn their back against on the world, and the secular priests are the ones who connect with uh, the laity, who have a pastoral role in relationship to the laity and therefore must have some understanding uh, of the problems of work and marriage and all the rest of it. So um, this actually is quite a good uh, way into understanding what secularity really means. It means of this world, not of some other world, not of the next world uh, or a heaven realm or anything like that. It is of this world, this time, this culture, this particular historical circumstance. Uh, and uh, the word comes from a Latin word, cyculum, which initially meant a human lifespan and uh, gradually acquired the meaning of a century, uh, 100 years. So the French term for century, siècle, comes from cyculum. Uh, and so it, um, it orients our minds to the fact that we live in particular historical and cultural circumstances. This is tremendously important to our way of being in the world. And so when we undertake something like a spiritual practice that is meant to uh, make our lives more meaningful, 
uh, allow us to go deeper in our self-awareness, become uh, more self-aware and thus less self-obsessed in a dumb way, uh, then we have to understand ourselves in terms of our own times. Timeless truths uh, may not be of any use at all. In fact, they might be uh, the quite, quite the opposite. Uh, so, this, this is an idea, the, secular, the idea of secularity as being about this world and about this time and about this context uh, is something you find in historiography, uh, in forms of um, interpretation, in various philosophical and social scientific disciplines. And it is precisely, I think, what secular, uh, the secularity in secular Buddhism is about. Um, the reason why there seems to be a tension between uh, what is secular and what is religion, or what is religious, is because so much of religious life, uh, but by no means all of it, is concerned with timeless truths, or so-called timeless truths. Uh, the idea is that we can uh, learn um, the ethics of being a modern human being from reading Leviticus or something like that. It just doesn't uh, make any sense. And what you find is a strong, a, a, a strong affinity between um, secular Buddhism and forms of modern philosophy that abandon the whole idea of timeless truths, and particularly the whole idea of truths about things that are not obvious to us. Um, none of this is new, by the way. You know, there was um, a, a bunch of philosophers in ancient Greece called skeptics uh, who said one should hold no beliefs about anything that is not self-evident um, or is not evident to the senses and essentially that's the Buddhist position as well and um, when we and so there is this idea that um, uh, we need to abandon that kind of thinking that kind of thinking that says there are truths that transcend um, all historical times, all situations, all cultures, uh, and look instead at what is useful in a particular time and place. And I'll be suggesting to you in a moment that that is exactly where the Buddha himself began. Um, the other thing, of course, about the, the other problem with timeless truths is uh, that... Um, and I, I will use timeless truths in inverted commas <laughs> whenever I refer to them, and I won't do that much more, um, it is that they come down to us through, uh, usually through texts, which, have, which are often millennia old and have a lot of blotches and fingerprints on them from folks who have been their custodians and guardians uh, through those thousands of years all of whom have had points of view 
and particular kinds of vested interests in how those texts are read and have in no cases been above fiddling with them. So uh, there is always the problem of, uh, you know, when someone says uh, the Quran was written by God, uh, but he, it, even if you believe that, it was seven or eight hundred years ago, what's happened since? You know? uh, who's had a go at changing, changing things around? And certainly there's been uh, a lot of uh, fiddling with uh, the Pali Canon, the uh, earliest teachings with the Agama Canon, the Chinese version of it. Um, and we, we know that, you know, we can, and modern Pali scholars can see the bits of, that have been added, and I'll come to a significant bit in a moment, but uh, all those um, misogynist bits, for instance, in the Pali Canon, ha you can see, or someone who is highly trained in Pali can see that they're actually being added um, long after the event. Uh, to put it crudely, because a lot of monks didn't like women. Uh, and we can see that sort of uh, prejudice, that sort of spin coming in, uh, in in other aspects of the Pali Canon, which of course it, it's part of biblical studies and so on. So um, we have also there the problems of literalism, you know, that, uh, that somehow the idea that the words mean what they say, they don't need to be interpreted, we don't need to be sensitive to historical context to understand what the original author was really getting at. That is, um, that is a, a widely recognised problem and it leads into fundamentalism, you know, people think. They really, really know what Jesus really, really said and really meant, and uh, there's to be no uh, variation from that. Um, now, um, secular Buddhists in general are very keen to read the Pali Canon, and they want to read the Pali Canon um, to get an to get a, an, an historically informed idea of what the Buddha was driving at. So in order to do that, it's fairly important to, uh, to, to the greatest possible extent, to understand uh, the Buddha's time and the predicaments uh, and the uh, social upheavals that were going on in his time, um, because they, of course, are part of the context in which we are to understand and interpret the the, uh, the discourses, um, and we also want to um, uh, be able to read those texts without, uh, without approaching them through the enormous amount of commentarial literature that has been uh, generated overwhelmingly, in fact virtually exclusively, by monks since the Buddha's death. Now there are two immediate problems with um, uh, with approaching the Pali Canon. One is, of course, that the Buddha did not speak Pali. Um, he spoke a, he spoke a number of dialects, as far as we can figure out. Um, none of which were Pali, because Pali was, is an artificial language that was developed 
as a vehicle, uh, as a sort of uh, lingua franca of, um, of uh, the, uh, the, the doctrine of the Dharma. So whatever is in the Pali Canon is already a translation uh, from something that we simply have no, uh, we have no access to because it was quite obviously not written down and the dialects involved have presumably died out. Uh, and the other one, of course, is the commentarial tradition, uh, the particular way in which expressions have been understood in a way that has been useful to monastics and particularly to monastic hierarchs. So we'll never know what the Buddha, quote-unquote, really said or really meant, but we can have uh, a pretty intelligent um, uh, estimation of what he uh, said, what he was driving at, and why at that particular time it might have been extremely meaningful to put things in the way that he did. And um, there is, um, in, in Greece, in ancient Greece, they had a particular uh, branch of philosophy known as the art of interpretation or what they called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics named after Hermes, the messenger of the gods. The Greeks invented this because they wanted to work out what Homer really, really was driving at. Um, and it, it's an extremely useful way to approach things, to see uh, interpretation as productive, as a very important part of understanding the origins of a tradition. And um, so interpretation is productive. And uh, these days there's a, um, a modern school of, uh, of hermeneutics. The, um, it's actually got a very uh, good German lineage from Schleiermacher to Gaudemar in the 20th century, uh, which also is, has been enormous benefit in uh, in generating ideas around secular Buddhism. So, for the rest of the period tonight, I want to talk about. I want. I want to go back to the Buddha's first discourse, and see what these sorts of ideas uh, can, and this kind of approach to a very important discourse of the Buddha in the Pali Canon can do. Now, most of you, I would imagine, uh, would have first come in touch with Buddhism, either in secondary school um, or by um, having reading something about it in a book of comparative religion or something like that. And uh, what you would probably have come across at a very early stage uh, was the idea that Buddhism, uh, the foundation stone of Buddhism, is something called the Four Noble Truths. And uh, the Four Noble Truths, according to this view, go like this. Truth number one, life is suffering. Truth number two, craving is the cause of suffering. Number three, the end of suffering is attainable. Number four, 
the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, the, Buddha's, um, the, the Buddha's prescription for how to live a dharmic life. The Noble Eightfold Path is the way to the end of suffering. Anyone recognize that? <laughs> okay, well let me suggest to you that we're off to a very poor start here. Um, the Pali text we've actually inherited, uh, often going by the name of the Discourse on the First Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma, doesn't say anything of the sort. Uh, yet it is, uh, it, is re it is commonly held out as the canonical basis of that version of the Four Noble Truths. It now turns out uh, that originally the teaching didn't even have the words Noble Truth in it. Um, Arya Sachani, uh, which you find in, in all those conventional accounts of Buddhism, uh, this is the term for Noble Truths and these are the Noble Truths that I've just, um, just laid out. But it turns out, uh, through scholarly analysis, that uh, almost certainly the teaching did not contain those words at all. And uh, it went off in a completely different direction. So let's go back to that, uh, to that first teaching. Uh, as according to the tradition, the Buddha um, had his major awakening experience when he was about 35. Um, and uh, he was in a big dilemma after it about whether to try and teach what he had learned or not. He felt it was so subtle and so profound that people would not, uh, would not understand what he was talking about. It would be impossible to communicate. Uh, but then um, he decided to go the other way. He said he thought that out of compassion uh, for other human beings, he had a, a, a duty to try. So he tried an experiment. He uh, went and found five old mates whom he'd spent some years practicing asceticism with. So these are extreme forms of austerity, self-torment, uh, self-denial. Uh, when he had realised that that was the wrong path and had abandoned it, the, these five had sent him to Coventry. You know, they'd said he, he's, because he's eating properly and sleeping properly, he's uh, adopted a lifestyle of total luxury and, um, and, is, uh, and has abandoned the, the true path. So these people were dogmatists. Um, they didn't want having to do with him. Uh, when they saw him in the distance, they said, right, let's just ignore him. We won't listen to what he's going to say. But as he drew nearer, they, could, they had a sense that something important had happened. So they, they decided they'd listen grudgingly to what he had to say. So what happened then was probably a very tough um, communication. <laughs> there would have been lots of arguments, lots of objections. And um, and eventual and the Buddha was trying to find a way in to uh, to these very closed minds, and um, eventually he found it. 
he found formulations of, of what he had taught that actually got through. So what we probably have in this sutta is, or this discourse, is an executive summary of what he eventually said and which they picked up on. So what does he tell them? What is it that he says to them that actually gets through to them? He says that he has discovered uh, a new way of practice, what he calls a middle way. And he uh, defines this middle way at first negatively. He says it is a middle way that avoids two dead ends. The, the dead ends of addiction to sensual pleasure. Notice addiction to, he's not saying there's anything wrong with sensual pleasure per se, but the problem is our relationship to it. That is one of the dead ends. The other dead end is addiction to self-torment, to austerity. So, you know, you can imagine the, the five he was talking to didn't like that bit. Um, so the middle way is something that avoids those two dead ends and uh, those dead ends are really interesting points of interest because they're not going anywhere. They're dead ends by definition. If you're in one of those, you're not getting anywhere. Uh, they're states of stuckness. So his middle way is not a state of stuckness. It is a state of, it, it is a path. It is a progressive path. Um, and he has some uh, quaint uh, ways of dismissing the dead end, saying that they are undignified, um, they are low. Uh, in the case of um, of hedonism, they uh, that it is village-like, <laughs> and uh, and as far as self-torment is concerned, it is painful. So, in other words, not a great idea. So um, then he briefly says. The middle way consists of eight folds. And he uses a, a term for each of those folds, sama, which means appropriate or right or authentic. And these cover um, uh, understanding, thought slash intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and mental integration. So in other words, it's a very comprehensive path. It's a way of life. And it leads to calming, clarity, awakening, and the reduction of anguish. Then he comes to the centerpiece of this teaching, um, which are four central issues for the spiritual practitioner of the middle way that must be that the practitioner must identify, recognize as workable, and fully plumb. So um, the first of these is a term he called dukkha, a Pali term that means um, unsatisfactoriness, um, suffering, irritation, annoyance, stress, distress, everything from total calamity to minor irritation. This is what 
uh, Dukkha is often translated as. But the Buddha, um, in this teaching, actually said what he meant by it. And it's a very interesting list. Birth, ageing, sickness, death, contact with whom and what we dislike, separation from whom and what we love, not getting what we want, and our general psychophysical vulnerability. If you think about that list, none of us can escape any one of those. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the difficult aspects of the human condition, the inevitable and inevitably difficult aspects of the human condition. Um, we don't create them by craving. So this is why the conventional uh, idea of the Four Noble Truths is quite wrong. I mean, there's no way uh, that, uh, and unless you know, one adopts uh, a, a, what in our culture is a, a rather extraordinary belief system, unless one adopts another sort of belief system, one cannot see these as, the, as being caused by suffering. They are simply uh, the um, inevitable aspects of being in the world. And um, in each case, uh, the Buddha is saying we must fully know what they're about. So Dukkha is um, the first one. The second one is arising. In particular, the arising of craving. So the Buddha uh, characterizes craving as, quote, repetitive, wallowing in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, for existence in certain uh, desirable states and for non-existence or oblivion. So the implication is that we fall into craving as an evasion of the human condition. Uh, instead of being in and being fully consciously with the experience we're having, we clutch after another set of preconditions. You know, I, I don't want this to be happening. I want to be somewhere else. I want to be in Bali or wherever it doesn't rain and get cold. And that sort of, that's the sort of craving, the escapism in, uh, in the craving that is a problem which we can obviously avoid. It makes the difficulties of the human condition so much worse. Uh, so what the Buddha is saying here is let go of craving. In relationship to the first focus, dukkha, he's saying fully know it. Fully be there in it. Know it. Okay. In this case, the second one is saying let go of it see what's happening and let go of it. So the third one, the third of these focuses is ceasing. So we've had uh, dukkha arising, now ceasing. 
which he defines as the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this experience, and he says, realize this, this is an experience, be there for it, turn up for it, realize it. This experience is, has a name, Nirvana, or Nibbana in Pali. It is the experience of ceasing, not ceasing to exist, but ceasing to crave. Ceasing, uh, a letting, for even however momentarily, letting go of all that turbulence. Fourthly, there is the path with its eight branches noted above the middle way. And what does the Buddha say? Cultivate the path. So we don't have four truths here. We have four um, injunctions to do things. Uh, one of the, the sort of grandfather of secular Buddhism, uh, a, an English-born monk, um, in, uh, in Sri Lanka in the 1960s, compared this teaching. He was the first one to realise that the whole idea of the noble truth was an entirely wrong interpretation of the first discourse. Um, he said uh, that these, what the Buddha is saying here is very much like the label on the medicine bottle uh, that Alice found when she fell down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and what did the medicine bottle say on the label? It didn't say anything about active ingredients or what it was for, any of that. It just said, drink me. And this is what the Buddha is saying. You know, deeply uh, understand suffering. Let go of craving. Realize cessation. Cultivate the path. You, know, you can see uh, what that idea was, that it was very much like the bottle that said, drink me, do something. So, um, that, um, what, what he said there was that, you, that there were three things one had to do in relation to each of these four focuses. Firstly, you had to identify it. Secondly, you had to see the possibility of rising to its challenge. And thirdly, you had to plumb or cultivate it fully. So these four focuses each had three aspects. And that means these are, these are 12 action points. Uh, if you are, when you are following this particular part of the teaching. And um, so he said, uh, after, the interesting thing is that um, after he'd given this teaching and he had seen that they'd got it, in, in, in fact he was over the moon about the fact that they'd got it. There's a description of him dancing around saying, Kondanya knows, Kondanya was their leader, Kondanya knows, Kondanya knows. And from that point on, Kondanya was always known as Kondanya, who knows? <laughs> um, but um, he said then that until 
he was entirely clear about the 12 aspects of the four tasks, he, quote, did not claim to have had a peerless awakening. So this was a great moment in the Buddha's own spiritual development. He had a right, because you know, he probably owed these five characters a great debt, if they hadn't resisted him, he wouldn't have uh, been able to come up with such a crystal clear statement of what he had learnt and it was on that basis that he could say that he had had a peerless awakening because he had become entirely clear about the 12 aspects of the four. Uh, and he said his mind is now unshakable, there will be no more repetitive experience. Um, and interestingly, Kondanya, um, after, you know, everyone calmed down a bit, <laughs> uh, he just summarised the entire teaching in, these, in three words. Whatever arises, ceases. So here we have the whole idea of impermanence uh, and conditioned arising. Kondanya has understood uh, that there is a... a, there is a um, uh, a view of reality that is underpinning this vision that the Buddha has just um, unfurled for them. So those of you who have um, come to the Dharma through rather conventional uh, ways and through uh, conventional traditions might find this, uh, this way of talking about the four so-called noble truths rather surprising. Um, but what we need to see here is the Buddha is not offering uh, revelations about things we otherwise could not possibly know. He is telling us, on the contrary, how to understand our experience without any presuppositions, without any uh, metaphysical truth claims whatsoever. Um, he is merely telling, it, telling us, or in the first instance, the five ascetics, uh, how to mine their own experience, how to understand it, how to work with it. So, uh, on the basis of that teaching, we can see that we can get down to work without first signing up to any metaphysical truth claims at all. Uh, he is not telling us that we suffer because we crave, rather we suffer because that's endemic to our being in the world, along with, as he would add later, joy and the possibility of enlightenment. This is what human life consists of, suffering, joy and the possibility of awakening. So this is the tiger we have to ride. And hankering for a ride on the tram instead is not going to help us at all. It will simply increase our unease. Uh, and he's not offering to relieve us of our humanity, uh, of our being in the world, by whisking us off to some suffering-free heaven realm. Rather, he's offering us a helping hand uh, to make the most of this world 
and this vulnerable human body-mind by sticking with the real, with what is actually going on, what we are actually experiencing. Whatever arises, ceases. So what are we today to make of this no magic tricks Buddha, steeped as we ourselves are, uh, in deep scepticism, uh, informed by evolutionary biology, by Big Bang cosmology, neuroscience and the rest. Well, what I'm going to try and suggest to you throughout this, uh, this workshop is that this is a Buddha that we can relate to. So I'll leave it there and open it up for questions and comment and outbursts of hostility. <laughs> Just on the, on the Four Noble Truths, I've heard the Four Noble Truths said to be um, kind of mirroring uh, uh, medical formula. So, you know, the Buddha is kind of as the physician of the world, and the formula is kind of laid out the way that someone would treat the disease. Um, with your scholarly experience, No, I think that's a conventional, uh, that's, that's one of those uh, conventional interpretations. That idea, of course, fits the conventional rendition of the Four Noble Truths, but I don't think it fits at all well. Um, you know, the view that Jnanavira uh, announced in uh, the, the early 1960s um, <clears throat> and that... Um, Stephen Batchelor and a number of people much more recently have uh, have recycled. Um, just another quick question about the first discourse. Um, I've heard a story, pardon me, um, that the Buddha had an experience after an alignment where he met up with, I don't know, it was a, a kind of ex-companion on the path or someone. Mm. Yep, that's right. He, he was on his way from Uruvela, where the awakening experience occurred, to what is now Sarnath. And he met the, um, the five ascetics in the deer park out on the outskirts of Sarnath. But on the way, I mean, there was about, I don't know, something like a 100k <laughs> tramp. Uh, he did meet um, another... Uh, wanderer, another Samana, uh, and it, who knew him, I think. I think that, that's the implication, that they, they at least were acquainted. And the Buddha was pretty, um, you know, pumped. <laughs> and, uh, and so this character just asked him what, what had happened, you know, what was going on. And, um, and that, you know, what you say is correct. The Buddha just said, I've seen it all, you know, it's, it's all happened, I'm totally awake and so on. Um, and, um, and this other man, uh, you know, was trying to get him to come down to earth and say, 
what exactly it was that that had happened and I uh, couldn't get a straight answer and so walked off in disgust. So probably in hindsight the Buddha thought, well, that went well. <laughs> and, uh, and so it might have been, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of wake-up call that he needed to do better next time. Suggesting that uh, during the sitting that we might like to put aside any uh, particular techniques such as shamatha and just sit with what's happening. Was that suggestion made in the context of, uh, I guess, your your sense that that type of sitting is more conducive to this experience of dukkha that we actually we. So without the overlay of technique, we just sit with dukkha, we experience mind wandering mm. and aches and sleepiness and... Uh, the, I'll come clean. Um, I, I mean, my, the, the form of meditation that I teach is recollective awareness, um, which has been developed over the last 20 or 25 years by Chase and Sif. And to my mind, it is much closer to the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Buddha's major teaching on insight meditation. Um, because, uh, and, and the kind of techniques that um, are in circulation today have been developed in monasteries since long, long after the Buddha's death. Um, and they don't seem to me to really honour the spirit of the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, the Satipatthana sort of seems to be much more open-ended, uh, non-formulaic approach to meditation. Now that will certainly do what you're saying. You know, it will be, it will um, give you. Uh, if if there's some particular predicament in your mind at the time, it will come up in in meditation, and it will be processed gradually in meditation, which is you know, obviously a good way to go. But these non-formulaic approaches to meditation, there's quite a, a few of them around now, not, ju not just recollective awareness, but um, uh, a Zen teacher called Barry McGeed, um, who wrote a brilliant book a few years ago called Ending the Pursuit of Happiness, <laughs> um, where he talks about the, this kind of approach and why it's important and why we should get rid of the whole um, idea that, um, go back to the question on my right here, of what he calls curative fantasies, that we are meditating in order to cure ourselves of something. Um, it, you know, his view is that that is a very, a very unhelpful way to approach a meditation practice. Um, so, there are, there are a number of other ways. Um, uh, Tony Packer, for instance, a very important now, very elderly, she may actually be dead now, I'm not sure, um, teacher, uh, also had this idea of you know, non-formulaic, non-technical ways of meditating. I can go a bit further into that later on, I think, in the workshop as to why, what those technical approaches to meditation are really all about. But I don't think they 
are particularly helpful. So samatha practices can be helpful. They, you know, just to have them in your toolbox, your meditator's toolbox, is a good idea. But um, use them sparingly, and unless you're, unless you know, they give you enormous satisfaction instead of enormous frustration. <laughs> uh, in which case, use them as much as you like. Well, the object is, you know, what the Buddha was talking about was um, calming insight um, uh, and awakening, awakening in the sense of becoming, uh, awakening understood as a process. Uh, you know, those aha moments we get in meditation, particularly, you know, if we're on retreat or something like that. Um, the... The, I mean, it, sure, sure, if some of those techniques, if they really work for you, you know, the primary object, secondary object, that sort of thing, um, go for it. Um, but what we need to understand about those techniques is that they were developed in monasteries. Uh, they were a way of disciplining and training celibate males living in total institutions, to have standardised experiences, uh, a form of regimentation. And, um, you know, when you talk about the, all, all the people who have achieved some form of awakening, the question is, well, what is the criteria, what are the criteria of that? Um, and what sort of lives was that awakening actually informing? So we don't, you know, there's probably uh, no celibate males in the room. Um, some of us aren't even males. So, you know, uh, what is this actually, what is the, we have to really question what the usefulness of that is. And to my mind, to go back to the Satipatthana Sutta, which was meant for um, men and women, lay people, monastic, and I mean, there were no monastics in the sense we understand it today. There were renunciants who were leading semi-feral kinds of lives. Um, these people, I think, are more like us, and the uh, and and the and the teaching that was unfurled. Uh, by the Buddha in the Satipatthana sort of seems to be much more appropriate to us than it is to these training techniques to drill a very highly specialised kind of human being to do 
to have highly specialised experiences of some kind. Where did you get that from? That answer? That answer? Uh, where did you get that answer from? Because it's not nonsense. Okay. No, you can't create experience for other people. You can teach mm. them techniques and then they can use Um, well, let me just take an example of um, the Mahasi approach. Uh, there you've got um, a, a relatively, uh, uh, what should I say, relatively liberal approach in that you've got first, first and second uh, primary and secondary objects, but you have uh, you in your training, your meditative training, which is um, uh, a form of training developed in monasteries. You have to achieve seventeen prescribed experiences, seventeen insight knowledges, as they're called, um, and. Um, and these are a bit like, you know, checkpoints in, um, in, orient, in orienteering. You've got to have those experiences. Uh, and you can't, you know, you're not allowed to fake them, but you're given the, the, you're given the technique and you report on a regular basis uh, to a teacher who just waits until you get to number one and number two and number three and number four, etc. Uh, no, I'm saying this is the kind of approach that I'm criticising. It's not the approach you've tried none of this in the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you understood me correctly. That I'm, 
in, in, I, I am actually saying we should go back to the Buddha's own meditation instructions, which are non-technical, instead of following these technical um, technical uh, approaches to meditation, which were standardizing for a particular kind of human being living in a total institution. Just, just a question. Um, I, f I personally found to learn some techniques helpful. Mm. You know, and and, and I, the way I'm hearing what you're saying is there may be may come a point where these techniques that one learns need to be abandoned to, you know, to perhaps mm. open up wider and for other things that perhaps mm. the technique can't give you. But uh, it's sort of like when you learn any skill, there seems to be a certain few prescribed steps that help in in in, in mm. first getting getting self going, and. Um, and no, here, so, so that's the way I'm hearing you, mm. um, and that obviously different cultures have developed different techniques that are helpful, and perhaps then people have become rigid about those techniques. Um, and what I think, what you're pointing towards is that the Buddha's own instruction is to ban, abandon, have the sense of freedom to be able to abandon the, whatever techniques or whatever crutches one has created for oneself to really mm. open up to a bigger and wider experience perhaps and perhaps a deeper one that's sort of the way I'm not sure if that if that's sort of yeah I mean there there is a sort of a paradox here that um, most of us have ha have learnt techniques mm. and I mean samatha techniques and, we, and I include metta bahavana and loving kindness meditation in that um, are useful in that you get some idea of how um, how you might approach focusing the mind a little more if you feel that is what is essential. But I think as you get into a meditation practice it's important to take responsibility uh, for making decisions about which way it should go. Only you know that. Um, and um, and so when you go to the Satipatthana Sutta, you find the Buddha is assuming that. He's providing, uh, he's setting out almost a smorgasbord of possibilities as to where you might take your meditation practice. And that seems to me to be, um, you know, the way to go for us. Because we, you know, we lead very complex lives. We are um, a very different kinds of people uh, than the ones that, um, that the, the technical forms of meditation were developed for. Mm. Our, our lives are, are much more complex and, we, and, they, and they don't start out with a renunciatory initial push, right? None of us, I think, want to leave the world. None of us want to give up. Um, you know, the way in which the, the, the many aspects are of our lives, you know, lovers, family, kids, mortgages, dogs, cats, work, careers. Uh, I mean, the, the, why, why don't, you know, so we need, these of course, one of the things you learn when you meditate, clearly, is uh, your way of life 
comes up to meet you, to meet you, you know, what the, the things that, the experiences you have in meditation refract your way of life. And so we have to have approaches to meditation which are appropriate to people like us with the kinds of lives that we have. Just, just so Kai wanted to... All oh, right. Okay. Uh, there's certainly mention of it, and and it's pretty clear that the Buddha himself um, uh, believed in rebirth. I mean, there's a difference between reincarnation and rebirth. Uh, but that was simply um, uh, part of the reality construct at the time. You know, he probably also believed that the world was flat, uh, because that was part of the reality construct, I suppose, that all human communities had until what, the uh, 14th, 15th century or 14th century. Um, so, but it was not something he taught. And indeed, in, it would seem that there were certain sceptics around at his time because in the Kalamar Sutta, uh, at the end, you know, after the famous bit, when you get to the end, he's, he's actually saying, um, he seems to be addressing people who don't believe or some of whom don't believe in rebirth, and simply says uh, that practicing the Dharma uh, is um, every bit as meaningful if you, whether you believe in uh, rebirth or not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.